Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after reading that text, is everybody ready to be encouraged? Killing, mass slaughter of children. No, this is a very encouraging text of scripture, and I'll I'll point out why as we go through. And uh, my goal today is to try to encourage you as we go into the new year. Uh, It's inevitable, whenever uh, whenever someone runs for... um, Whenever somebody runs for office for president of the United States, and president of the of the United States is arguably the highest the highest uh, office in the land. Now, some of you might disagree with that. Some of you might say, "No, it's the Supreme Court or whatever." But just go with me for a minute. The, the The president of the United States is the highest office in the land. But inevitably, when somebody runs for president of the United States, they have to make campaign promises, right? You've heard these before, and some of these are uh, in. You know, as time goes by and a good distance in time is separated between uh, that campaign promise and and now, some of those look pretty funny, right? A chicken in every pot, right? Uh, or one of my favorites from my childhood: "Read my lips, no new taxes." And uh, was it? Did he even get a full year into his presidency before they raised taxes? I forget. It wasn't long. It was, it was not long at all. Uh, why, why is it? Why is it that a, president, a presidential candidate can make certain uh, promises, but then they don't fulfill those promises oftentimes? Well, it's because the president is not, is not uh, supreme leader of the United States, at least didn't used to be. <laughs> that was a joke, sorry. Uh, the president of the United States uh, according to what we learned in Schoolhouse Rock, right, uh, has to work with the Congress, right, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And if, if the bill passes the House and the Senate, then it can go to the president and maybe get vetoed or it could get signed into law, right? And that's the way that the system is supposed to work. But even if it gets signed into law, the Supreme Court can come along and declare it what? Unconstitutional, right? So there's all these checks and balances. In other words, the president, which... I mean, people in the, on the planet Earth right now still call the president of the United States the leader of the free world, but the president of the United States does not have supreme authority, uh, and, 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 so, and that's by design. But we're looking at the life of Jesus, or at least the birth of Jesus, and what we have to understand is that Herod the Great, Herod the Great, the ruler of Judea, or the ruler of Israel at the time of of Jesus' birth, he had much more power and authority in his day than the president does today. Uh, He was put into office. This is the time of the Roman Empire, right? And so there is an emperor in Rome. Caesar Augustus is is the guy's name. And uh, Caesar Augustus is able to declare like local rulers, local kings, whatever, uh, that are all subject to the Roman Empire. So even Herod the Great is under the authority of the Roman Empire. But his main job in life, Herod the Great's main job in life, is to keep the emperor happy. How do you keep the emperor happy? You really gotta do two things. Maintain law and order and send taxes to Rome, right? You do those two things, you're in pretty good shape. Keep it quiet, send the tax money. If If you do those two things, you're in pretty good shape. So as we've already studied, Herod viewed 
the birth of the child who was born king of the Jews, according to the wise men, as a threat. And in our text today, we will see how he uses his authority, his power, to try to unilaterally exterminate this child who was born king of the Jews. However, we're going to see that there is someone greater than Herod out there and that that someone who is greater has plans that will not be thwarted by even an earthly king. So the big question we're going to wrestle with today is how is God how does God demonstrate that he is greater than Herod the Great after Jesus birth? How does God demonstrate he is greater than Herod the Great after Jesus birth? Let's get into the text. First thing that we see in this text is in the first few verses we see that God is able to rescue Look at verses 13 to 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord, an angel is a messenger, right? An angel brings a word from God. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When they had departed, who's the they? The they is the wise men, the magi. We, tradition says there were three of them, but we don't really know. There could have been many or, or few. But uh, when the wise men departed. Now remember, the deal was is that Herod had made a deal with the wise men. They came through Jerusalem looking for the child. Uh, Herod found out about it. He interrogated the wise men and said, hey, when you, when you, I'm gonna let you go to Bethlehem. When you find the child, come back and tell me and report it to me so that I may what? Worship him. Did Herod have any intent to worship this child? No. But that's what he said. And so he was trying to use the wise men as a, as a pawn. But the wise men had been alerted again in a dream. This is weird. God had alerted them in a dream to uh, go back home by a different way. Don't go back through Jerusalem. So they did. So when they had departed, now an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, get out of town, go to Egypt, right? And remain there until I tell you. First thing in this, in this the first sub point I wanna share with you is that God's toolbox is larger than ours. His toolbox is larger than ours. Men... Human beings, men and women, y'all can, we can get, we can set goals uh, and we can set goals at an early age. You can go through school getting straight A's and you can set your sights on enrolling in and being accepted to an Ivy League university, right? And you can go and get a four-year degree there and then perhaps pursue a law degree which seems to be a popular route to get to, the, to be rich and powerful, right? You get a law degree from a prestigious university. And, and in doing that, you can get to know key people, right? All the other Harvard graduates, Harvard law graduates or whatever. You can get to know key people, people of influence. And you can accumulate wealth and influence in your life until you become placed in a position of power and authority. However... And by the way, don't be fooled. Herod, Herod was a politician. 
he was able to get enough, collect enough, uh, collect enough uh, uh, education, collect enough influence, get to know the right people, be part of the right family to get into the position that he was in. He was no fool. However, all that being said, God is the one who created the universe. And though Herod can do a great many things, one thing that Herod cannot do, one thing that I can't do, one thing the president of the United States can't do, nobody can do, is put a dream in your head from God, right? But God can do that, and he did it. He sent an angel in a dream to warn them to leave. Now, now my, my brain all automatically goes to, man, I'd love to know the timeline of exactly at, when, at what moment did Herod decide to kill all the children or to kill, kill the Christ, uh, to try to kill the Christ, and at what moment did the angel appear to, to Joseph? We don't know that for sure. We don't know what the timeline is. The point I'm trying to make is that you see what's going on here. Man is trying to thwart God's plan. God won't have anything. God is able to deliver. He's able to rescue. He won't have anything to do with that. Now, I don't know, I don't know this is probably just my, the way my brain works, but I see in this narrative echoes of David and Saul, right? David and Saul. Remember that whole narrative in, in uh, 1 Samuel 16? Well, before that, Saul had disobeyed the word of God and was therefore not any longer in God's favor, and God was gonna strip him of being the king of Israel. He was the first king of Israel, and God was gonna take that position away. So in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed king by Samuel. But here's the problem. The problem is that Saul still occupies the throne. Saul still has the position. So in chapter 17, what happens in 1 Samuel 17? David kills somebody. Goliath. David kills Goliath. Now, after going out to face this uh, Philistine giant with nothing on, nothing, he, he didn't wear the armor. He didn't, all he had was a sling and some stones. And he kills uh, the Philistine's greatest champion. You think King Saul has some feelings about that? Yeah, by, by chapter 18, Saul is jealous and fearful of David to the point that in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, Saul tries to kill him. David, the rightful and anointed king of Israel, is chased around by Saul, who is the current corrupted, deposed king of Israel. And what's the difference between David and Saul? What's the difference? Who's on David's side that's not on Saul's side? God. And so as we think about that and we bring that into our text this morning, who, who is God's anointed in this situation between Jesus, who's still an infant, still a child, uh, maybe perhaps up to two years old, uh, between David and Herod the Great. Well, it's obviously God's son, Jesus. Jesus is born king of the Jews, but Herod the Great is the ruler currently in place. And instead of clearly seeing what God is doing, Herod, just like Saul, is blinded by his own ambition, blinded by his own trying to grasp and keep power. And so Herod, like Saul, tries to eliminate the problem. Folks, we think that we can thwart God's plans. There are human beings walking around this planet right now who think that they can pull a fast one on God and thwart his plans for humanity. Be filled with hope this morning. They can't. 
They can't. God is going to do what he's going to do. He's going to accomplish his mission on the earth despite the best efforts of the most powerful. He finishes this section with a prophecy from Hosea chapter 11, verse one. And if you know anything about, if you know anything about the prophet Hosea, probably the number one thing that everybody knows about the prophet Hosea is that he was told by God to marry a prostitute, right? That's probably the first thing that comes to your mind. But, but Hosea, like other prophets, is a messenger from God to the people saying, you need to turn away from your sin. You, you've forgotten about me and you've pursued false gods. You're bowing down to worship the Baals and the Ashtoreth and all these other false gods instead, and you've forgotten totally about me. So, so Hosea is calling them to repentance. And in Hosea chapter 11, God, God expresses his anger at disobedient Israel, followed by his sadness over what they had done, followed by his promise of mercy to restore. All that happens in chapter 11. And at the beginning of chapter 11, it says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So why does Matthew reference Hosea chapter 11, verse one? Well, Matthew, like many people, sees a pattern in scripture, sees a pattern in God's overall plan. And to Matthew and to many people who study God's word, what we see is we see Israel and her disobedience and rebellion to God over time compared with Jesus, the new and greater Israel, who comes in perfect obedience. If you want examples of that, think about, think about this. Israel wandered around in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. And they bellyached about the food, and they bellyached about the leadership, and they bellyached about a great many things. And they often fell apart. They fashioned a golden calf and began to worship it while Moses was up getting uh, the law from the finger of God, right? Jesus came to the earth, and the, the scripture tells us that he was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness and passed that test perfectly without sin. So, so Matthew, as many people do, sees a pattern in scripture. And so when Matthew sees that Jesus is being told by the angel to go to Egypt, some lights are going off in his head because Israel, the nation of Israel, the house of Jacob, spent many years in, in Egypt before God brought them out with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm. And so he sees, uh, Matthew sees the parallels between Israel's time in Egypt and Jesus, the new and greater Israel's time in Egypt. So he makes reference to this passage, out of Egypt, I called my son. See the parallels? Now, before we move on to point two, let me just say this. We could make an argument. I don't think it would be difficult to make an argument this morning that existing in our time right now, today in 2021, is a great deal of fear and anxiety in our culture over a great many things. There's fear and anxiety about the virus, fear and anxiety of being censored or canceled for your beliefs, Fear of government overreach 
fear that people will not accept us. Perhaps fear and anxiety that the church itself is being corrupted as it departs from the word of God. But in this text, be encouraged, brothers and sisters, we see a very vivid example of a very powerful man trying to subvert, trying to kill the very child who is a threat to his power and authority, and God simply makes a way for escape because he is able to rescue. And if he's able to rescue back then, then he's able to rescue right now. Amen? Second point from the text is this. Herod's authority and fury are unable to destroy Jesus. Look at verses 16 and 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. By the way, have you ever... Uh, do, why, do, do people in high authority like to be duped? They do not. They take it personally, <laughs> okay? So when Herod, when he had found out that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according, that he, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. First thing that we see in this section is extreme measures. Extreme measures. Herod is taking extreme measures. He does not appreciate the fact that he was tricked by these magi, these wise men. He does not appreciate... He, he probably feels like he has to not only exercise his authority, but he has to save face from all his high-ranking officials, from anybody who would dare to kind of give the old, well, Herod got one pulled over on him, didn't he? Ah! So he's got to exercise his authority, and he's got to do it swiftly, and he does. He sends probably a, a small detachment of troops to round up all the, ch the male children, two years old and older, not only in Bethlehem, but in the surrounding region and they are slaughtered. Let's take a moment to, to think about what that would have been like to live in that region in that time and to have this dastardly, you're, you're, you're an innocent family. The, the only thing that you've got is you've got this child in your household, this blessing from the Lord that you're enjoying and all of a sudden, troops come in, seize that child, and kill that child. It says that he was furious. This is definitely, I mean, I, I always teach, because I believe that the Bible teaches that anger can be righteous or unrighteous. Anger. And uh, the context tells us for sure this is unrighteous anger. So, what do we see? We see a man in authority taking extreme measures to try to subvert God's plan. Many of you know about World War II and uh, Hitler and Germany and all this kind of stuff, but, but if you ever get time to, to study the events that led up to World War II, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating study on how uh, this man, Hitler, came to power. Uh, I'm going to read to you from an article about, about this. It says, Hitler had been appointed Chancellor of Germany only four weeks previously 
on uh, January 30th, 1933, when he was invited by President von Hindenburg to lead a coalition government. Hitler's government urged von Hindenburg to dissolve the Reichstag. Think about the Reichstag as the parliament. That's, where the, that's the building where the parliament meets uh, a, a group of elected officials to try to govern the nation of Germany. So Hitler was trying to urge President von Hindenburg to dissolve that and to call elections for the 5th of March. On the evening of February 27, 1933, six days before the parliamentary election, fire broke out in the Reichstag chambers in the building where the parliament meets. While the exact, and, and this is key, while the exact circumstances of the fire remain unclear to this day, what is clear is that Hitler and his supporters quickly capitalized on the fire as a means by which to catalyze their, uh, their, con, uh, their consolidation of power. Hitler almost immediately blamed the Communist Party of Germany for causing the blaze and believed the fire would result in more Germans supporting the Nazis. So you see what happened here. To this day, it's 2021, it's many years later. To this day, we don't know how this fire was started. It's likely that witnesses were paid. There's one man that they blamed the fire on, and some witnesses were likely paid off to say, we saw him walking to the, to the building. And other witnesses were paid or likely manipulated to say, well, we saw him being dropped off by a car. And he got out and he went in, and a short time later, the building was on fire. The bottom line is we don't know to this day how the fire was started, but what we do know is that Hitler, who was a master already by then of propaganda and change, uh, using facts and blame, blame shifting to, to change public opinion, was cranking up his propaganda machine to get himself appointed as the dictator of Germany. He used fear fear that our nation was being uh, terrorized, fear that, uh, that, that people were going to be hurt and their safety was going to be threatened. He used that to steer public opinion to put me in charge. And as soon as he was in charge, just very shortly after this fire, uh, this group made a decree that stripped people of their freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, suspended many personal liberties in the name of keeping Germany safe and united. Sound familiar? The point I'm trying to make here is that these extreme measures that are carried out so often by leaders like Herod the Great are done and they're driven completely by fear. More on that in a moment. History tells us a little bit about Herod's death. Now, this is speculation somewhat, but um, there are some eyewitness accounts of, of the things that Herod was suffering from. And so modern doctors have taken those accounts and tried to deduce what Hitler's problem was. And they've come up with the following diagnosis and what killed him. Chronic kidney disease complicated by an unusual infection of the male genitalia that resulted in gangrene. So his death likely was accompanied by intense itching, painful intestinal problems, breathlessness, convulsions of every limb, and gangrene in certain areas of the body that I'm not going to mention. 
It was a very painful death. I just mentioned that. Uh, I just mentioned that because there may be a lesson there about going against God. Don't know. Then this section is also capped off by a prophecy. And this time it's from the, the, uh, Jeremiah the prophet. And if you know anything about Jeremiah, he was, known, he was known by a moniker. Do you remember what moniker he's known by? He's the weeping prophet. Why was he weeping? Because it was in the final days, right, of Jerusalem. It's in the final days before they're taken into captivity and deported by Babylon. And if you know anything about cities back then, they were usually fortified by a wall. And so the best way to, to overcome that city is to lay siege to it, right? You surround it and you cut off supplies. And if you're, if you're really good, if you really want to speed things along, you either cut off or you pollute the water supply. Because people can survive a, a little while without food and water, but they can survive much longer with just water. So if you're, if you're really good, you'll cut off the food and you'll cut off the... Uh, or pollute the water, poison the well, so to speak. And so things in Jerusalem at the, at, at the end were bad. And he recorded a lot of that in his prophecy. Ramah was the area where Bethlehem is currently located. It's also the, the region that Rachel is thought to be buried, according to God's word. She's buried in that region. And Rachel is recognized by the Jews as the mother of the nation of Israel, even though Leah bore more of the sons who would become part of the 12 tribes of Israel, Rachel is considered by many to be the mother of the Jewish nation, Israel. Matthew's reference to this text is likely operating on a couple of different levels. First of all, the, the very bad and deathly conditions in Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian siege and eventual deportation I'm guessing that many of the weak and the young died. And so there, she, he's probably comparing that to what's going on with Herod in killing all the children. And secondly, just the whole idea of the exile to a foreign land. Jesus is being exiled to Egypt. And in this, the, uh, in, the, in uh, Jeremiah, the people were being deported to Babylon. Now, just, just so you know, Jeremiah, a few verses after this reference, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah starts to offer hope in a restored Israel, in a restored nation, which pointed to the hope that Jesus would also return from Egypt to Israel, which we read that he did. But look, here's the bottom line to this section. In, in, in the end, despite all of Herod's power, his authority, his fury at being double-crossed by these wise men, and the extreme measures that he took, God, Herod is not able to thwart God's plan. He can't do it. He is not able to kill Jesus. Makes me think of Proverbs 21.1. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Our, our, you know, the earthly leaders that we're under they, have a, they may have a plan. They may have, they may have it in their mind that they want to go against whatever or try to thwart God's plan. They can't do it. Their heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And we need to remember that as God's people, amen, at all times, even when things look bleak. All right, third and finally, 
we see in this text, God is able to place people according to his purposes. So Jesus is in Egypt with his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, and now God is going to take him and put him back in the land of Israel. Verse 19, when, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And when he lived in a little city called Nazareth, or, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would ca be called a Nazarene. A few observations in this, in this section. First of all, I see echoes of Abraham. In other words, in Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, get up and go to a land that I'll show you, okay? Get up and leave your family, leave your country, and go to a land that I'll show you. I have a feeling that if I asked you to do that today, get up, leave your family, leave your home, and go to a place, I'm not gonna tell you where it's at yet, but go to a place that I'll show you later, that you would probably, that would probably be met, rightly so, with some skepticism, because I'm not God. But when God asked Abram to go to a land that he would show him, the Bible says that he simply got up and he went. And when you read verse 21, you know, you put yourself in Joseph's shoes. The government is trying to kill my kids. The government is trying to take out, and, and I'm guessing, I don't know this for sure, but I'm speculating a little bit that he had heard word. You know, Israel was a main tr trade route between Mesopotamia to the north and Egypt to the south. It was a trade route, and so perhaps word had gotten to Egypt about the slaughter in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. Don't know. But when God says, get up and go back to that land, take your family and go back to that land, verse 21 simply says, he rose, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. Scholars call that the obedience formula. God says it, the person does it. Abraham did that, and Joseph did that. We also see in this text that God's care for us is greater. Again, we see another episode with another, another dream, right? And what's the dream? Dream is saying, you know, Joseph's probably wondering where he's gonna go in the land of Israel, but in the land of Judea, after Herod the Great died, his kingdom was kind of broken up and, and more regional governors were given control. And so Archelaus was apparently not a good person. Uh, and so he was warned in a dream not to go live in the land of Judea, but, but instead to go up north. And so he settled in Galilee. Here's what I want you to know about Galilee. I said this from time to time. To us here in Ohio or where I grew up in Indiana, Galilee is kind of like Kentucky, right? They talk funny down there, you know? Nothing against Kentucky, not, nothing at all. They, Kentuckians probably think the same thing about uh, Buckeyes, right? They talk funny up there, right? But Galilee, uh, you know, in the account of Jesus uh, leading up to his death, uh, some, they were able to recognize some of Jesus' disciples because they spoke with an accent, a Galilean accent, right? And so Galilee is kind of 
the sticks when it's compared to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the seat of religion and the seat of government, right, in the land of Israel, and Galilee is way up north. So he goes up there and he settles in a town called Nazareth. And then there's this phrase. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that it might, what, might, what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that it would be called a Nazarene. And unlike the other two prophecies that are in this uh, passage that we've studied this morning, I can't point you to a specific verse or passage where this comes about. So here's, here's what we think. Here's what scholars think uh, this means. The, the town of Nazareth, that, that word could be translated branch town or branchville. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. And there are all kinds of Old Testament prophecies that talk about Jesus as being a branch of Jesse, that, you know, the, the, the father of David. And so it could mean, it probably does mean that, it, that it's some sort of an allusion to that Jesus, the branch of Jesse, is going to be living in Branchtown or Branchville, right? But then I also, you know, my brain also kind of works and I, I kind of think about Numbers chapter six. In Numbers chapter six, which is part of the Old Testament law, there's this thing called the Nazarite vow. And so my brain is at least reminded of that. And the Nazarite vow, I'll just read a little bit from number six, uh, what this was. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall take he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made with wine or strong drink. He shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even by the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for when he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy he shall let the locks of his hair, the hair of his head grow long. And then it talks about separating himself from things that are unclean, dead bodies and so on and so forth. Now, uh, the reason that many scholars don't point to this is because Jesus did come to this earth and he did touch the unclean, the lepers and, the, and, the, and he raised the dead. But uh, I can't help but thinking that at least on some level, one of the reasons that Jesus is 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 called a Nazarene is because he's separated for a special purpose for the Lord to carry out this mission of living a perfect life and dying on the cross for our sins. So God puts Jesus back in the promised land, back in Israel to carry out his purposes. So what does this all mean? Here's the answer. How does God demonstrate that he's greater than Herod the Great? Here's how he does it. God demonstrates that he was greater than Herod the Great by showing his ability to carry out his purposes and showcasing Herod's utter inability to do anything about it. Herod is utterly, given his, his authority under Caesar Augustus, given the power that he has to, do, to execute whatever he wants to do, even to kill a whole bunch of kids, he's utterly unable to do anything about it. Now, what are some, as we leave and as we enter into a new year over the course of this coming week, we're gonna be leaving 2021 and moving into 2022. What are some things that we can take away from this text? Well, 
one of the things that we can do is we can be filled with hope and not fear, right? It's very tempting for me, maybe you too, to look around at what's going on in our world today and be consumed by fear. Like somehow God isn't working or God is dormant or God is not in control. He is. This text makes that vividly clear that he is in control. He is going to work out his plan. He is able. And so as you look at what's going on in the world and as you're tempted to worry, let me share with you something that happened to me last week. I was gathered with some folks and we were spending some time in prayer and the person leading the prayer time simply said this, let's go around the table according to what we know from God's word, let's go around the table and let's reflect on, maybe share some of the mighty things that God has done in the recorded history that we have. And it was amazing. Every man, every person around the table was able to, to talk about the walls of Jericho come tumble, coming tumbling down, not because Israel had a great army. They were just a ragtag band of exiles, right? They marched around the city, as God had said, and they blew their, their trumpets, as God has said, and the walls came tumbling down, right? What about uh, using the lowest individuals, like Rahab the prostitute, and, and putting not only using that person to deliver his people, but also putting that person in the line of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And so spend some time not just wringing your hands about what is going on in this world and being consumed by the poison that is, <laughs> uh, that's pumped into your homes every day through CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and wringing your hands about what's going on in the world. And instead, Think about the mighty works that God has done and the plans that he has for humanity. Fill your mind with these things. And then secondly and finally, just a reminder that God has announced his plans, his purpose for you, right? This is laid out in 1 Timothy uh, 2, 3, and 4, right? This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me say that again. God desires all people. It's his stated desire. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And God is also, not, that's not only his desire, but he's, an, he's given us the gift necessary to make that happen. I, I put in here to rhyme with plan, present, gift, and, and that gift is articulated clearly in Ephesians 2. And so as we close, just turn with me to Ephesians 2 and let me read to you verses 1 to 10 and then, we'll, and then we'll pray and we'll be done. God has not only stated what his desire is, that all people are saved and come to a knowledge of truth, but he's given us the gifts necessary to make that happen. And that's articulated clearly in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where we read this from the Apostle Paul. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Boy, those three verses, if they don't punch you in the gut, I don't know what does. But that's who we were. We were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. And then in verse four, and all the way to the end, but in verse four, we see two words that should just thrill us to our toes. But God. God did not leave us in that circumstance. He did not leave us in that predicament. He did not leave us unable or un, yeah, unable to, to come to him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You see the contrast here? Dead in your trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath, and then you've got this loving God who because of his great love and mercy made us, not only made us alive with Christ, but raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. God did this to show, to show the immeasurable goodness of his kindness, the riches of his kindness towards us. That's his reputation. That's what he's known for is the riches of his grace and kindness. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These plans and these purposes that God has for us have been offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In order to experience the love of Jesus, the love of God through Jesus Christ, we must accept him. That means we have to believe that he died on the cross and that his death was sufficient to pay for all of our sins. And then we have to turn away from our sins, the, things, the very things that are killing us, the very things that are that are polluting our minds and our, and our lives, we have to turn away from those things and under God's power, walk in newness of life, which he enables us to do. And so I pray that if, if this morning you have not yet made the decision to trust Jesus Christ as your savior from sin, to turn from your old way of life and walk in the newness of life, you won't do so perfectly, but God will help you to grow you and shape you into the image of his son, won't you make that decision this morning? I'll be available to talk to you after the service and so will others uh, if you have a need. Father, we thank you for this time that you've allowed us to study your word. Father, we thank you for this place that you've allowed us to take, take some comfort, to have a seat, to, to hear clearly through a sound system and to be able to... Um, to, to relax from the hustle and bustle of life for just a few moments and, and be encouraged by your word. Father, I pray that we would, in the coming year, resolve not to operate our lives in fear, despite what's going on, but to be confident that as Joseph was confident in you and returned to Israel when he was told to, 
that we would be confident to live according to your word even when conditions on the ground here say that it is, it is perhaps dangerous to do so because we know the one who is in control and we know the one whose plans cannot be thwarted. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy New Year. May God bless you.